You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to the WMQA New York Comic Con 2023 special. It's Dan, and today we're going to be listening to interviews that I recorded last weekend at New York Comic Con with writer Steve Orlando, writer Ethan Sachs, Vault Comics publisher Damian Wassel, Goats Flying Press publisher Sebastian Gerner, and artist Hayden Sherman. Not in that order. Uh, as usual, it's con episode. You know, you get a little ambient crowd noise. You know, little 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 random noises in places. It happens, but I think it came together pretty good. Uh, I will tell you, I'm going to start off with an apology. I recorded a whole 20 minute interview with Kyle Starks. It was great. We had a nice time, except it didn't record because I forgot to turn my mics on because I haven't used them since New York Comic Con 2022. So that's a big oopsie doodle to me. Uh, An apology to Kyle and to Dark Horse Comics who helped me set up the interview. Uh, And a uh, reminder that I need to do better in the future. Uh, You know, all important things. Uh, I also, while I was there, sat in on a press room for the Image Skybound Energon universe with uh, Robert Kirkman, Joshua Williamson, Daniel Warren Johnson, Tom Riley, Sean Makowitz, and Lorenzo DeFelici. Not sure what I'm going to do with that just yet. The audio came in a little low uh, it was it was set up like an NBA post game press conference, and uh, you know I did the best I could. And that may end up being a written piece. I may play with the audio, teach myself some real editing. We'll see. Okay, I'm just telling you, it's out there, and uh, you know I'll I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. But in the meantime, uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, listen, I you know if you want more interviews from New York Comic Con, you should also listen to this week's Battle of the Atom. Uh, my my Jersey boy Adam Reck was also there, and he got a number of great interviews, which you can hear on that podcast. And hey, while you're listening to all the Comics XF podcasts, listen to Bat Chat too. You know they got Austin Gordon last week talking about all the times Batman was on teams. So listen, we're all doing great stuff. Listen to all of them, collect them all like Pokemon, except there's only three and it's a lot easier. Uh, it's like Ash never left the Kanto region. That, that's a Pokemon thing, right? Uh, I, I, you know, I'm just kind of going off what my son says. Uh, anyway, enjoy the show. W-N-Q-A. All right, it is the bit early on Saturday. Top of the morning to you, Sebastian Garner. Uh, how are we doing? How's your, how's your show going? Show's been going great. Uh, for my first time tabling as a brand new publisher, uh, just announced our comic book publisher, Goats Flying Press, not even a month ago, and we're already tabling at New York Comic Con, my hometown con, so very excited to be here, and it's been great so far. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's start with that. You, you, you went and started a comics publisher. Why? It's <laughs> a good question. So I've been in comics for uh, 15 years this, this summer, uh, so I think some point last year, last couple of years, I was like, this is not a fluke. I think this is my career. <laughs> uh, just about 10 years, I was still kind of like, eh, this might not be it, but I keep, I just keep at it. So I was, started out Marvel as an editor, uh, went uh, freelance, uh, edited a lot of creator-owned books for uh, 10 years almost, and then in 2018, I helped found um, Chico Studios, another mm-hmm comic book publisher, um, and I've been editor-in-chief there, and I am still editor-in-chief there, 
And then sometime last year, actually last year at New York Comic Con, I was walking around, I developed a bunch of pitches with a bunch of great artists, one of which we're kickstarting now as our first project. And I was pitching the projects and publishers were interested, they wanted to talk to us about them, but they were always, they had to kind of do the, make it smaller, make it more, make it easier to swallow. Our first book is, is, is quite, a, quite a hit when you see it. Um, so I was leveling the energy and the work it would take to kind of make those pitches palatable to, to existing publishers. It's about the same amount of work I figured as launching my own comic book publisher. And once I had that idea, I kept just kind of sloshing it around in my head and I really started to like it. Um, crowdfunding, self-publishing, obviously has have seen a big resurgence and I think the comic book market could also use another fully creator-owned publisher, which Goats Flying Press is. So I started putting the work in, looking at what it would take to do, and it, while it is work and it was a lot, I never shied away from it. And I never felt like too much work and it never felt like something that wasn't ultimately worth it. And then all the way up until announcement a month ago, and now that we're out in the world, it feels incredible. And uh, people have been incredibly supportive, and the Kickstarter's going well. We're still 20 days out, and we're already well over uh, 66%, so feeling very hearted, and I think that this might be where I will be making comics for the rest of my life. That, that, that is great to hear. So what are you looking to do uh, differently at Goats Flying Press to differentiate it from other publishers? So. Right now, Goats Flying Press is just me as founder, publisher, but also editor, writer of the first book, marketing, sales exec, so I really wanted to place myself in the middle of everything and have a hand on everything, not because I am a control freak, even though I am, and I don't think it, it's not bad sometimes in this industry, but also because I wanted to have a real build everything from the ground up myself and see what I can achieve that way, what my reach is, and then get to something that's scalable with more help, with uh, other creators coming in. That's kind of the reason why I went through the trouble of, of founding a publisher is that for, like I said, all the time that I've been in the industry, I really, I really do love working with other creators, working with writers, artists, young artists, established people, and, and really ferment that energy that you get that with collaboration, telling a story together, um, and all the incredible people that I've met over my uh, career in comics, and I want to have a place where I can offer that up to others as well. I also do a little bit of teaching at, at Pratt here in New York and SVA, and I always meet a lot of young artists that are, you know, training to be designers or character designers going into animation, but everyone wants to make a comic at least once in their life. And they ask me, like, how do I break in? The classic question, and I genuinely don't know, like, where to send them. Not because I don't like and trust, and there's a lot of great publishers out there, but the the way into the industry, kind of every artist needs, and writers as well, need like a training platform. Having an editor, having a publisher that believes in them, that sees raw talent, and then helps them produce their first book. How to work with a script, how to read a contract, how to set a page rate, like how to negotiate, when to walk away, all these little warning signs that genuinely right now I don't see a lot of publishers offering because they're either incapable or it would not serve their benefit if they empower creators. Mm -hmm. So Ghost Line Press is going to be a place where I can also, as a editor and a, and a veteran of the industry, try to put forth that kind of information and, and start helping younger creators come up. It might be small. I don't know if we're going to do massive print runs in the future. I'm happy to grow in that direction. But the point is also to just bring comics back to community local, 
whatever I can achieve within my arm's reach. And as that reach grows, I'll bring in more people, bring in more readers, be able to create more books and develop more comics. So, you know, you've got your, your, as you mentioned, your first Kickstarter campaign out there for Dead in the Dan with Kelly Williams and Jeff Powell. Um, how are you, you know, now you're sort of in the waiting around part mm. of the campaign, right? You know, are you, like, nervously refreshing the, the, the browser tab every, like, hour or so just to see how things are going? Yeah, Comic-Con has been great because I haven't been doing that because I've actually been <laughs> street-selling the book, talking to people coming up to the a table. It's great because we launched, like I said, a month ago. Social media hasn't been that great in getting the word out anymore. Uh, algorithm chokes everything out. Of course. Um, so I think that even having, if, I had, if we had launched, like, three or four months earlier, it would be different. So this is actually still my chance to tell people about the company for the first time, what, what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. I know a lot of people in the industry and obviously I've emailed and social media DM'd everyone, mm -hmm. but there's no comparison to just handing the book to someone or an Ashcan preview as we have, telling them about it, directing them towards the Kickstarter. So uh, I, and of course, a lot of other creators have, have done Kickstarters and they're all telling me that we're sort of in the slow phase right now. So I've definitely like bit all my nails down to a to a to a stump, but um, considering this is our first time out, uh, I'm very very heartened by the reception, and I feel very optimistic that we're going to reach 100%, maybe even beyond. And anything we make beyond that is going to go right back into making more comics. Right on, right on. Uh, now you're producing this book in an oversized format, correct? Correct. How did so, you guys land on that? So it's a format that I actually really like. Uh, readers of, of TKO books might remember the single issues, um, mm -hmm. which is a seven and a half by eleven and a half inch oversized single issue. We're actually going to double the size of that to forty-eight pages total. So it's a single issue with a spine, which I actually really like. It feels heavy. It feels not heavy, but it, like it feels weighty. It feels good, and it's going to be forty pages of art and story, and some editorial art in the back, and um, some stuff about the company and, and Goats Flying Press. So I think it'll be a really good. Package. I think that the single issue floppy standard in America that you see, like in every comic shop, Marvel sure. DC, I think it's nice, it's fine for the price point that we have, but because we're an independent publisher and also we're crowdfunding and we want to offer readers on Kickstarter something a little special, that's a format we landed on because it's something that we can produce reliably. Uh, we've worked with the printers many times before for various other publishers. So in terms of quality, I think that we can knock everyone else out of the water. <laughs> And then our goal for the future is to kind of bring in a readership that, that allows us to land on a price point that isn't just competitive on Kickstarter itself, but also when we start going to retailers, comic book shops, bookstores, and giving them something that is naturally going to be a little bit more than the average comic book price. But I genuinely think that the $3.99, $4.99, whatever it is now, that's a lot of money, but it's still... I think comics should be a little bit more expensive for the quality that you're getting and the community that you're contributing to. So I think we're going to try and land on something that hopefully no one will bat an eye when we give them a 48-page, beautiful, oversized comic, full color, with a lot of bells and whistles, and we'll have a lot of opportunity to really create something special for people. How did you gather your team for this first book? So uh, Jeff Powell is the uh, letterer and designer of The Dead and the Dam. He's also uh, the designer of our wonderful goat mascot. Nice. Uh, he's someone I've worked with for almost all of my comics career. He was in the bullpen at Marvel when I was an editor there, and we would talk and design. And he went freelance around the same time I did. And we kept in touch. And uh, as a letterer and a designer, he's 
he's an incredible, he's peerless in the industry, and he's also a good friend of mine. So it was natural for me to bring him on to just help me brand the, the publisher, <laughs> as it were. And Kelly is someone that I've uh, worked with several times across a couple of different publishers, but I've always really wanted to work with him as the artist on a book. And uh, as a preeminent monster artist, uh, I think a book that's 99% skeletons, uh, this was kind of a found for him. But I did also write this for him. I remember reaching out to him during the pandemic and said, I have an idea for something that's kind of dark and kind of weird, and it's got a lot of skeletons in it. And he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. <laughs> So uh, when I, I work, skeletons. yeah, it's uh, it's really. I mean, there's also non-skeletons in it, and it is a big epic family drama. Actually, um, it might not be evident as as you see the cover and, and the first eight pages, which are just like a giant all-out battle between the dead and the living. Um, but that was to me the book I wanted to start with because I wanted to start with kind of the the biggest, most off-kilter, most like differentiating book. I've got a couple of other artists that I'm working with, talking to, developing stories and ideas with for Goats Flying Press specifically. And uh, those I think we're going to reach a little bit more of an audience. But I think when you kick the door down and you don't know how well it's going to do and how long you're going to do, you want to shoot the shot that you came here to shoot. So it's not an exaggeration to say that I founded this publisher just to put out The Dead and the Damned. <laughs> now, the skeleton that you have at your table. Yes. Did you bring this from home? Is this something that you had lying around and you're like, oh, this will work for this campaign? No, this is the first purchase on my company uh, credit card. Uh, it's a business expense. Uh, he's our intern now. I'm keeping him around. Uh, but he, is, uh, he features in our uh, Kickstarter video. Uh, so I got him for those purposes. And I also just figured that if I'm going to go through the rigmarole of starting a company, I can take uh, advantage of the uh, pro-corporate nature of American <laughs> business and uh, have a skeleton friend and he is uh, in my office he hangs out he's always behind me when I'm on zoom calls he sadly already lost an arm but that's the uh, <laughs> the wages of working in the industry you lose an arm and a leg sometimes but uh, we're very excited he's gonna start showing off some merch of ours in the future as well so does, we're gonna give a name he does not uh, have a name we just call him the intern I think that everyone can project themselves into the situation of a comic book intern but uh, we might we might Give them, give them a name in the future. We are, we're unsure. <laughs> uh, Tabula Bonza, love it. Uh, so, given this is this is this is is this your most metal book to date? I would think so. Yes, it's going to be hard to outmetal this one by the end. <laughs> so, if the Dead and the Damned had a Spotify playlist, what would be on it? I wrote most of the Dead and the Damned to the. Uh, it's a. It's a atmospheric symphonic black metal album by a band called Caledon Brood uh, which made one album 10 years ago and then disappeared into the ether and they've never existed again fantastic if you're if you're into kind of like atmospheric black metal it's based on the writings of uh, Eric Stevenson he's a fantasy author who wrote 10 books massive big nerdy metal ballads with like sound effects of war and clashing in the background it's amazing I get goosebumps uh, also, the recent album by Cloak, uh, Black Flame, is incredible. Anything that's like a little evil, chunky, heavy riffs, blast beats, these is, that's the kind of energy we want to bring. But then we also have a lot of story, a lot of drama. Like I said, The Dead and the Damned is a dark fantasy apocalypse. There's a lot of father-son 
bringing life into a world that you're not really sure has much of a future. Um, so I became a father during the pandemic and I channeled a lot of those very real, very strong emotions into my book uh, about a skeleton apocalypse. So that's the beauty of comics is that you can, you can have your cake and also eat it too. How has, how has it been juggling starting, starting up Goats Flying Press while also you know, working as editor-in-chief of TKO? Uh, it's been a lot, um, not going to lie. There was, at a glance, there was not a reason for me to, to have another job in comics. Um, but, like I said, when I had the idea, and I'm usually not a, an incredibly impulsive person. I, I, I tend to be very careful, and my career in comics has been built up over the course of a decade uh, where I'm constantly kind of doing everything I want to be doing. I don't just want to be an editor. I've always wanted to be a writer, but I also genuinely love editing, so I wanted to be careful about giving writers and creators that I work with like the full editorial experience, not having the kind of cuckoo bird egg syndrome where I'm giving them my ideas. I want to develop my own ideas, and I want to develop my own voice as a writer. So when I started thinking about what I could offer creators and the industry that I genuinely love and a community of creators that I that I want to participate in as a publisher I just wasn't afraid and I wasn't giving myself reasons to not do it and then when I approached my publishers at TKO and, and expressed my desire to, to do this on the side they were very supportive um, I think they saw that it was something that I was deeply passionate about in the same way that I'm deeply passionate about TKO and my job as editor-in-chief and cultivating that line and that company's uh, brand, but also how it treats creators, how our deal structure is. So I would say that Goats Flying Press is the culmination of every job I've had in comics before. Editor, writer, therapist, editor-in-chief, <laughs> and now I'm kind of trying to bring all of that under the umbrella of, of being a publisher. And um, so far, so good. You know, I can do both. And as we grow both TKO and Goats Flying Press. Of course, I'll, I'll be in positions where I might need to expand in certain directions. Hire people would be amazing to be able to bring on someone to help in this way. Hey! Uh, so are you already working on what's next for Goats Flying or are you taking it one project at a time? So, <laughs> we kickstarted one project because I'll be the one fulfilling it, I'll be the one printing it, I think excitement is there for more. You see a lot of publishers launch with a line of titles. Sure. Uh, and that was a thought I had at the start, but honestly, I would rather do one thing really well and establish a baseline of quality, customer service, and a rapport with our readers, and then grow naturally. If we hit 100%, we will have some stretch goals. Those stretch goals are all going into the dead and the damned. We want this to be the book. And we're also focusing very exclusively kind of on the comic. We'll have some merch, we'll have some extra bells and whistles, but we really want it to be about the comics and not get swept up in the kind of accumulation of plastic stuff that, that comes a lot on Kickstarters. We, we're looking for that maybe down the line. So we have two secret stretch goals that are quite high, and we genuinely don't really expect to get that high in the future. But if people really want to know what we're cooking up next for Goats Flying Press, that would be uh, the reveal, would be the stretch goals. But personally, I'm writing and developing three titles, all of which I hope to bring to Goats Flying Press in the next year or so.
uh, maybe two years because this is going to probably grow a little bit slower. But we're very, very ready to go. I also have a laundry list of creators that I would love to see publish with us, both established and completely new, unheard of. So I've got a lot of plans for the future. It's just a question of how fast we can grow sustainably. That's, for me, that's the key, is that we don't have investors. It's my own money being invested. I know exactly how far I can kind of lean out the window without dropping out. And I never want to make promises I can't keep. And the better we do, the more people read us and back us and, and, and want to read our comics, uh, the more we can develop. Um, but the baseline is always going to be that creators are doing their best work, they're getting paid, they own 100% of their work. Uh, Goats Flying Press is a publisher. We're going to build a network of retailers, of readers, of fans, comic book lovers, and just make some really cool stuff and keep challenging ourselves and keep pushing ourselves, but never at the cost of the community and the quality of the book itself. Uh, and then finally, this is just sort of me speaking as a fan. I just wanted to thank you for once again giving the world more shirtless bear fighter. Yeah, uh, I loved volume two. You know, you I know so you, were, you were editing that. That's right. Uh, Jody was writing, but uh, that's some good shit. <laughs> thank you so much. That was a big book. That was a challenging one. I think uh, doing a sequel to Shirtless was—it seems natural. It was actually quite tricky to do because that first—that first book is something we're all incredibly proud of. Just in, as a blast of creative madness, but also just a really solid story and an incredibly self-contained one. Um, and then the second one, we wanted to expand on the, on the world, on the themes, on the characters, bring in a lot of stuff. So it was an incredible amount of work. And Neil's art, Neil Vendrell, the artist, is just, he gets better. I think every page he draws, it's, he was going to be here, but sadly he uh, came down with, with COVID on the way over. So we'll have to uh, bring him over next Comic-Con. But yeah, Shirtless Bear Fighter is, is where it all started. It's pretty wild. All right. Well, Sebastian, thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your show. Thanks so much for talking to me. really appreciate that. All right. I am sitting here with Hayden Sherman. Hayden, how's your convention going? Are you sketching? Are you looking at a commission list a mile long? What, what are you getting up to? Well, mercifully, this year, I am not tabling. So I'm just floating around, saying hi to people, meeting with people, uh, going where I'm needed, and things like that. Uh, yeah, it's been good. Good, good, good. Uh, what are some of the first comics you remember reading? Oh man, first comics I really remember reading. The ones that I can remember probably most vividly that made the, the staying power impact. I found um, at a garage sale, somebody was getting rid of like almost every other issue, frustratingly. But almost every other issue of, uh, I think it was like Reign of the Superman at that time, which is okay. like, they'd like just come out and then they were getting rid of it. And issue 500 specifically. Uh, lives in my mind. There are so many. I I want to say that was drawn by Jerry Woodway and, and possibly interchanging with Dan Jurgens. I could be wrong about that. Uh, there are these amazing splash pages throughout that issue of these fantastical environments. But Superman. I don't know. There's this thing about it that I'd seen Superman, but I'd never seen that Superman. Uh, and it, the imagination of it really struck me. Uh, things like that. And uh, after that, years later, Batman Year 100 by Paul Pope. And, Stuff. Uh, and there's a lot. Did you ever fill in those gaps? Uh, oh, yes, thankfully. And it was great. I had a great time. But yeah, growing up, it's like, what? <laughs> what do you mean, suffering Superman's evil? <laughs> so, you've got Dark Spaces Dungeon uh, coming out at the end of this month. This is your second Dark Spaces collaboration with Scott Snyder, the first being Wildfire. Uh, at what point in working with Scott did you two decide, oh, we're, we're a tag team now? Oh man, uh, honestly it was probably about halfway through Wildfire, we were just really enjoying it. 
Uh, from the top, we were excited. I mean, I've obviously been a fan of his work. I was lucky enough that he was a fan of mine, uh, and that was a good starting point. But after that, we just it just kept flowing smoothly, and that's just a wonderful thing. Anytime you find somebody that you can just kind of link up with and be additive to each other's process, uh, he's certainly that to me, and and it seems that I can be that to him, then I'm very grateful. So after about halfway through, we were already thinking like, oh, shoot, like, man, next, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> How is the, the vibe of Dungeon different from Wildfire? Uh, I would say we're, uh, let's see here, with Wildfire, it was a heist, or a thriller by way of a heist. Mm -hmm. um, I would say this one is just a straight through thriller. Like it is, it's a thriller by way of serial killer type stuff. Like uh, it is grounded in a way that feels, uh, the core essence of it is grounded in a way that I think the everyman nature of it is more, all that more impactful. Uh, and we are heightening it in certain ways so that honestly, for my benefit in some way, it doesn't just like completely destroy me while I draw it. <laughs> Um, Scott's told us in the past that a lot of his story ideas are born from the things that keep him up late at night. Yes. But uh, what, what was the origin of this particular tale? I mean, I think this one is uh, pretty, I have to imagine, pretty profoundly universal. The idea of being held against your will. Uh, and then taking it from there. You're held against your will anywhere is already... Oh, miserable, terrible. To be held against your will in a space that you don't have any say or control over, and you, like it's not tall enough to stand up, it's not wide enough to lay down, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I I don't think we have to say too much about why that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> and and really just going from there and just and uh, trying to find some sense of justice against this thing, this this very real, very awful sort of sort of uh, thing, and then again heightening it in ways to make it uh, genre at the same time as being, you know, we're not doing true crime here, this is like, this is a comic and it's awful, but... <laughs> how was, and I don't want to get too deep into spoilers, but how was designing sort of the torture device? The dungeon, uh, yes. if you the will, dungeon. at the heart of this book. Man, uh, it was fun. That's the big point of inspiration, I don't know if I've said this before anywhere, the big point of inspiration was going to, I was visiting a friend in Washington, D.C., and like we'd just been talking, Scott and I, about you know, the dungeon. It has to have a, a, a look to it that it kind of tells you what it is as soon as you see it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it, it's it's awful, but it's kind of simple in its structure. And when I was in D.C., the subway uh, system has this, like, arching uh, series of, like, squares with, like, inlaid squares that just, like, comb over the whole thing. I just remember being in there waiting for a train being like, this is terrible. <laughs> it's beautiful. Like, I'm looking at the light and like, this is amazing, but I would hate to be trapped in here. This place is, like, uh, existential on some level to me. Um, so... Thinking of like that design and then making it this inverted pill that you live in and are stuck in that can move and change at somebody else's will. Uh, it scares the living shit out of me. So <laughs> hopefully that, that translates. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, you've worked on some twisted tales in your time in comics. You know, where where does Dungeon ranked on the uh, F'd up meter? Because it is pretty dark. I would say it's probably top of the, it's uh, yeah, probably king of the hill right now on that one. <laughs> Because uh, the other stuff that I've done, horror, has been, I don't know, doing uh, 
like a Frankenstein thing years ago. That's very, it's just like big monster, creature feature. Um, spooky, more, more spooky, I feel like. Uh, and then uh, more recently, Blink is scary as all hell, uh, but also has this this kind of grounding quality of feeling like a dream, like they're walking through something that is changing and is unknowable. Uh, I think what scares the shit out of me about this one is the more grounded aspects of it, which I can't think of anything else I've done that quite has that. Um, you're young, but you've already done a lot in comics. You know, is there a big ticket item left on your bucket list that you want to manifest into the world? <laughs> uh, big take, uh, the one that I would want to manifest, uh, big Superman book. <laughs> like, okay. If I could grab that, I'd grab that in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many. I, there's so many things I'd be happy to do. Like, uh, Alien is another one, if we're sticking in the vein of horror. Sure. Oh my god. Yeah, I would... I cheat and steal <laughs> to get on an alien book someday. So, yeah, lots of different things would be very fun. Uh, we're like a week or two out from recording our, our Halloween special, so I've been going around asking creators this question. Uh, favorite werewolves in media? Oh, favorite werewolves in media. Um, first one immediately that jumped to mind, and I don't even know nearly as much about him as I probably should, but it's like Captain America was a werewolf for a bit, right? He sure was. He sure was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm not making that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. My mind is completely hooked on him. And he's just... It's Captain America's a werewolf. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, listen. It's it, that's it's probably one of the campiest stories, mm. but it sticks, and they keep going back to it. Yeah. There's a Cap Wolf series that just started. Yeah. Oh man, I missed that. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it, 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 like a world. It's set in World War Two. Because sure. Why not? Yeah, werewolves, World War Two. I get it. They can bite the Nazis instead of punching them. <laughs> um. What else do you have going on right now that uh, you want to plug, talk about? Oh, man. Uh, what are you excited for? Yeah, let's see. This month alone, I've got... Uh, so, of course, Dungeon is coming out soon. Yeah. Uh, I've got uh, the most recent issue of Harley Quinn, Black, White, and Red. Got a short in there with uh, Sean Lewis, who's a longtime collaborator. And yeah. Friend. Um, got, uh, let's see, issue two of Predator versus Wolverine is out, and I've... I'm just on the back two pages for the era that I'm drawing. Uh, you'll find more of me in, in November in issue three. Okay. Uh, which is uh, Predator versus Wolverine. Uh, so fun. Um, it's getting you closer to Alien. Uh, you're so right. You're so right. <laughs> um, so that, and then, uh, you know, kind of out on future horizons, more DC things, and a Dark Horse thing, and I should probably leave it at that. Okay. Nope, that's, that, that's fair. We get, we get how that works. Uh, you know, you mentioned Sean Lewis, who you worked with on Thumbs and uh, Above Snakes. Yes. Yep. Oh, right on. Good memory, mate. But, um, you know, the, the creators that you sort of came up with on your early projects, you know, like, uh, let's say Michael Morisi or, or, or Sean, um, Chris Sabella, you know, when, when they see you, you know, oh, I'm working, you know, with Scott Snyder, I'm doing this Predator thing, you know, is there like... Jealousy's not the right word. Everybody wants everybody to succeed in comics. But it's like, man, I was just going to ask you to do another book with me. But then I saw you got this, and I'm like... Oh. I mean, the thing is, we're always, always talking with each other about wanting to, to make the next thing happen. And it's like, uh, Sean and I are currently getting 
figuring out what that's going to be. We want to make it happen because, I mean, the reality, unfortunately, is art takes time, and yeah. I only have so much I can give at so many points in time. But you know, I give. I want as much as possible to work with everybody I've worked with because everybody I've worked with has been a delight and has brought things out of me and my art that I couldn't have done alone or and they're all distinct to those different writers in, in different ways and just want to keep making comics with all of them forever and at the same time I'm so happy to see like Sean doing an amazing run on Spawn yeah. and uh, Mike's uh, Barbaric which is just blowing up and uh, everything that, like everything everybody's doing is just fantastic so we're happy for each other's mutual success and at the same time we're like god damn why are we all so busy <laughs> uh, I'm always I'm always fascinated especially by how artists budget their time because you know you're doing series work but you're also like doing a lot of variant covers for DC and stuff like that you know how do you sort of budget your time so you get it all in there? Um, ideally, uh, I, I'm grateful to work, uh, gratefully I can work very fast, uh, so I can fit a few more things in here and there. Uh, ideally, I try to give myself weekends, so that way I can be as exhaustive as I need to be on a normal average weekday and then give myself adequate rest. Uh, but, I don't know, it's, it's kind of... It, when it rains, it pours, and sometimes you just have to be willing to give it your all, and you lose your Saturdays and your Sundays. But, uh, I don't know, a certain amount of, of rigorous planning, knowing how long it takes you to do a certain thing, allows you to tell the people that you're working with what you can do, and then deliver on it. And you're not over-promising, you're not under-promising, and you're not under-delivering, uh, which is great. So... I don't know, the more the more I do, the better I know how I work, and I can take on more. Yeah. Right on. Um, you've gotten to do some of the backups in Detective. Mm. Uh, what what have been some of your favorite things to draw there? I know Dan Waters keeps trying to make the Tin-Eyed Man happen in his various books, for example. <laughs> oh man! In the, so in Detective Comics specifically? Yeah. Ooh, uh, man! I got to do, okay, so there's the Size Spurrier one, uh, Two-Face story, which is just a treat. I'm so happy we got to tell that over the course of uh, three backups. It's like one 24-page story altogether. Uh, that's just, that's a delight. That was my first time getting to work with Sai as well, and, and he and I continue to stay in touch, because like, what a voice that guy has. Um, and we just, like, similarly there, like, he was just pushing me, like, to, like, what if this got really weird? It's like, yes, what if it got really weird? Uh, sounds amazing, let's do it. Um, that was a joy. And at the same time, Dan Waters, uh, my first time working with him on Ten-Eyed Man. And in a similar way, Ten-Eyed Man, he just pushed for, like, what if it was just weird? It's like, yes, what if it's weird? <laughs> and I love, I absolutely love any time, like, that was my first time working with both of them. And the trust to be like, this is insane. Let's do it. And then for me to deliver something back that's weird and hopefully they weren't expecting, but then they're still like, yes, fantastic. Uh, both of them are a treat. Uh, and those stories are a lot of fun. <laughs> right on. Well, uh, hey, no, I don't want to keep it too much longer. Uh, final question is we release you back into the world. How can people follow you on online and keep up with everything you got going on? That is such a good question. Social media These is days, completely yeah, splintered. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I... Yeah, begrudgingly. I keep my Twitter going because that seems to be where people still are and I have to get things to people. So, I can be found at uh, CleanLined on Twitter. Uh, 
at Klingland, C-L-E-A-N-L-I-N-E-D. Um, and then Instagram under the same, and I'm on Blue Sky as well, uh, for what it's worth. And I started and stopped Threads, I think, the same day. So <laughs> Yeah, Threads tried. Yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much for chatting with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. So uh, I'm sitting here with Ethan Sachs, and uh, you've just put out a brand new image comic series, uh, Haunted Girl, uh, which you co-wrote with your daughter, Naomi. Uh, you and Naomi are telling a very personal story about depression that's also a supernatural horror story. Um, what were some of the challenges in making this book, A, with the collaborator, B, who's also your daughter, um, C, such a personal topic that, you know, I have to imagine it presents some very raw emotions for both of you. Yeah, so uh, just to, to catch listeners up, um, the origin of this was about four and a half years ago. My daughter was hospitalized for depression and suicidality, and... Uh, it was obviously like a really tough time for us as a, as a family, and um, I was a comic book writer. I actually wrote one of the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge scripts mm -hmm. in the hotel, in the uh, hospital cafeteria, waiting between visiting hours. Oh, wow. And um, but I was distracted, obviously, and I, I it came to me. I wrote down one line, which was the fate of all life on Earth rests with a girl who doesn't know if she wants to live, and I wanted to make a story that has a protagonist who's going through similar battles and. Um, to hopefully inspire her and maybe others. And then now, four and a half years later, we're finally getting it made, and the big difference is uh, it's not only artist Marco Lorenzana who I'm working with, but my daughter, Naomi, yeah. who's in a better place, who could uh, write it with me to inspire others. Uh, so it was a little tough because not only you have the collaboration thing, but you also have, you know, I was worried, you know, you're putting yourself out there, people will be able to Google, the first thing that will come up will be a very personal story. Um, it could be triggering. Uh, so we were, you know, I was very, I wanted her to know what she's signing up for. Yeah. Uh, but she agreed to do it, and, uh, you know, there were times where she had to take a step back. Um, you know, the, the dialogue is either kind of inspired by what she went through or uh, what she wanted to say at the time. Uh, so, yeah, it was a challenge in that way, but also cathartic and mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, I think, uplifting for her. Did Naomi have an interest in comics prior to this? Yes, very much so. Uh, you know, her one of the cool things <laughs> I was able to do for her was when I was doing Old Man Hawkeye, I had her as a character whose old woman Hawkeye is like number two person because um, that was her favorite character at the time was Kate Bishop. So uh, you know, she's very she has specific things she likes. She loves Paper Girls. She loves uh, her Miss Marvel. Um, Dr. Afra, so like they're, uh, you know, she has her own um, sort of tastes. I don't know that she's read that many comics of mine, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so she she has loved it. I don't, I don't know that she's been like encyclopedic, um, but yeah, definitely. There's, there's, she's young, there's time to catch up to that part. That is true, that is true. Um, the father in the story has to thread a very delicate needle because he's he's obviously trying hard to be supportive and be what Cleo needs, but also has to make sure that he doesn't center himself in her story. How art imitating life is that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, the characters aren't like one-to-one -one, sure. um, mm -hmm. inspirations or like pattern on us that closely. In fact, like for plot purposes, Cleo had to be adopted, um, mm -hmm. which sort of comes out more as the story goes. Sure. Uh, so, um, 
you know, but I think a lot of what did resonate was saying the wrong things, you know, like trying to be helpful, but kind of maybe saying the wrong things with the best intentions or, or things like that, sort of learning how to, you sort of have to reteach yourself how to parent. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was, um, you know, kind of taken, taken from there. So, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, we're in a different place now and, you know, so for example, you know, she still has depression and when she occasionally, um, when it flares up, you know, and she's away at university, she'll contact us and talk to us and like, we'll show the cats and stuff like that. So it's, it's a much more communicative period. Um, so that's kind of developed over time. That's good. Uh, I imagine in addition to writing the story, you know, you also spent a lot of time sort of teaching the craft of comics to your co-writer. Am I yes. off the mark there? No, no. I mean, that was the, I think the biggest thing for her to adjust to. She's always loved writing, but she's never done anything like this. So for the first issue, I did almost all of the, like together last uh, winter break, we broke down the story as like a, a very detailed outline with the number of pages for each scene. And, um, and then uh, I wrote the first script in a very skeletal way, like, panel descriptions, you know, the number of panels per page, and like basically what happens. I left her two pages, which was the therapy scene, mm -hmm. to just do, see what I did elsewhere, and just do that from scratch. She did all the dialogue for all the teenage characters, the therapist, um, you know, that sort of thing, and I kind of did a lot of the structural stuff. And then by the third issue, I would say she did 60% of everything. So like she had, this way she could kind of see how it was put together, and like learn, because you know, it's, as, as creative and kind of fun as it is, it was also like a structure and, you know, you, the artist doesn't exactly, you know, Marco and mm -hmm. uh, the colorist Andre Mosa, the letterer Jaime Martinez, like they need detail, like they can't see what's inside your head. So, yeah, so uh, it was, it was, you know, she had to pick up on that. That was mm -hmm. different from the poetry and like fiction that she just liked to write. So, uh, but she's had some experience with like, professional writing. Uh, she was a junior reporter from time to time at the New York Daily News when I worked there. Oh. So she interviewed like Steven Spielberg and Ava DuVernay <laughs> and Elvi um, Carvalho and Manuel Miranda. So like she had a, you know, deadlines and uh, you know, having to write something and even if you're not 100 percent thrilled, like letting it go because mm -hmm. it has to come come in. So like she had that experience at least. So, so far you've, you've gotten your daughter to follow your, in your footsteps in both journalism and comics. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, I hope she doesn't uh, go into journalism as a profession. Uh, that is not, not the most stable of professions right now. But uh, you know, she, she's interested in, uh, in, in being like an environmental activist, I guess. And so I think writing is more something on the side. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a fun hobby for I think that's... Yeah, it's, it's funny. I like, to, I like to tell people my dad would come home from work at the end of the day. And he would tell me, don't become a cop. And I will come home at the end of the day and say to my kids, don't become a copy editor. <laughs> Except they're in bed usually by the time I get home. So. Yeah. 100%. My, my dad was a dentist. He was actually a prison dentist towards the end of his life. And oh, wow. uh, there were interesting stories there. But he hated his parents had forced him into it. And he said, I will support you no matter what you do, mm -hmm. unless it's dentistry, in which case I'll break your effing fingers. So, yeah. Um, kind of a reverse Hermie from uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> well, he was always like very much like, you have to love what you're doing, yeah. even if it's monetarily isn't, isn't the uh, smartest choice for careers, just because most of your waking hours are, you know, like, you need to be happy. Yes. Uh, how did you connect with the rest of your creative team? 
So Marco uh, Lorenzana, who's our co-creator, so the three, Naomi, Marco, and I are the co-creators, mm -hmm. uh, he was the artist on my very first Marvel story, which was a eight-page Daily Bugle story in uh, an anthology related to uh, Secret Empire. Like oh, okay. It was a uh -huh. spin-off series. So we had an eight-page story, and so he was the very first uh, artist I worked with professionally, and he was like, I want to work with you again. Uh, so we did a creator-owned one-shot, a flip book, um, mm -hmm. in 2021 called Intrusion, which sort of came and went. It was released by uh, Rolling Stone. Uh, not Rolling Stone, I'm sorry. Heavy Metal. I don't know why I said Rolling Stone. Uh, <laughs> by A Magazine. <laughs> yeah, by A Magazine. Uh, by Heavy Metals, like, uh, but an uh, imprint magma under them. Um, okay. So uh, it, that was our second experience. And then, like, this is something we've been working on even before that. So finally, finally, it's out there. Uh, oh, wait, sorry, the other two. Yeah. <laughs> Andre Mosa, like you know, was uh, was my colorist for uh, Old Man Hawkeye and uh, part of Old Man Quill, and I just love working with him. And um, you know, we needed a colorist, and so I kind of lobbied for him. Uh, and Jaime Martinez is a friend of Marco's, but he's a fantastic letterer. So. And then, how did the book find its home at the uh, Syzygy imprint? Yeah. So, uh, shout out to Chris Ryle, who's like took a leap of faith on this book. We came close several other publishers over the years. Uh, but I think there was some uh, discomfort with, you know, the theme of suicide. Sure. Um, sure. There was some question if, like, if we're trying to target teenagers, like, will the, you know, is the art a little too scary? Okay. But I envision this as a PG-13 horror movie level. Like, okay. that's what I saw this as. I, I feel like teenagers kind of gravitate toward, towards that, but it also yeah. could be read by 20-somethings or, you know, adults or, or whatever. So there was, you know, there were some publishers who, like, lose the artist and, like, get a, a manga, more of a manga style, and I was like, that is not what I envision this as. Yeah. And I wouldn't do it. Like, I'm not the kind of person that would cut Marco loose. I think he's a fantastic artist, and he's a good person and a, and a friend. So we stuck to our, uh, you know, we stuck to our um, beliefs, and finally <laughs> we... Uh, you know, Chris saw what we were trying to do, and you know he's been—it is a leap of faith, you know. So uh, he took us on, and he's been, you know, holding our hand on our first image book because it's—it's tricky, you know. It's you have to do a lot of the stuff yourself, um, and uh, and then the other part of this too is unsung. Uh, part of it is Joe Posada. So our first cover, yeah. our first cover A is you know nice, got a lot of great variants to come and, and uh, some great artists, Jessica Fong, Paolo Villanelli, my Bounty Hunters artist. Mm -hmm. But the thing with Joe is he gifted us that cover. Um, wow. He's a good friend. He was there for my family like when this was all unfolding. Uh, and he wanted to support the cause. So he, you know, I mean, to get a Joe Posada cover is pretty amazing. That, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was something yeah. that I noted, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, on, on the other topics. You've been writing uh, Star Wars Bounty Hunters for over 40 issues since yeah. before, uh, my co-host wrote here, since before the dark times, before the Empire, I mean the pandemic. Uh, did you expect this series to catch on the way it has? Yeah, I mean, no, is the short answer. Uh, and, you know, the end is in sight. Like, we, it was not a, it's not an unlimited time. I won't say when, uh, as actually uh, may or may not be announced later today. Uh, but, you know, to, to have four plus years um, you know, from when I started on this, uh, most of which with the same artist. Like, that is a luxury we don't have in modern comics very often. No, no. Um, and the other cool thing about it was, I think, you know, when I was approached, the, the idea, there's two, two separate um, 
kind of drives. Like one was to use the Empire Strikes Back classic bounty hunters, but also uh, Mark Panisia, my wonderful editor of Star Wars line, wanted to, you know, because it was a Marvel creation from way back in the 70s to have Valance be a sort of POV character. Oh, yeah. And um, the idea at first was they wanted to sort of be like the Punisher in space, like this action hero. And mm -hmm. I, that's not what interested me. What interested me was what if it's PTSD in space? And here's a guy who is catastrophically injured and has put himself back together physically, but is still finding his way yeah. emotionally. And this probably because I was going through trauma at the time with my family. <laughs> that spoke to me. And so like I loved putting these characters through some really dark stuff and having them not only survive, but work their way back. And so that for me was the, uh, the draw of the story, the hook. Uh, I've made it kind of a little bit more of an ensemble story than originally intended. Uh, we have some characters that uh, Paolo and I co-created, like uh, uh, specifically Tonga and Mosha, a, a couple at the sort of heart of the, of the book. And so uh, we love it. We have a little bit more freedom because they're not, you know, necessarily characters that you have to account for, you know, a lot of lore after this. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously Bosk is, is around and other people are around, but um, we, we had a little bit more free reign than, say, if it was, you know, Luke or or Han or something like that. So it's been it's been a great ride, and I'm blessed to have been on it. The the Star Wars line has these regular events uh, that you know go, go across books: War of the Bounty Hunters, Crimson Rain, Dark Droids. You know, uh, comics have a history, generally, of events throwing off the flow of a book. You know, like a Secret Wars two, for example. But Star Wars titles seem to use the events more within the flow of everything else that's going on. So, kind of curious about the planning that goes into that stuff. And, and while you describe that, what I'm, I'm going to picture in my head is like you and Charles Sewell, Greg Pak and Alyssa Wong, just all kind of discussing this over drinks at Ogus Cantina. <laughs> you know, you're not far off. Um, we've had these weekly Zoom meetings, uh, also with Mark and with the editor, Mark Guggenheim and with the editors as well. And uh, so the five writers and the, uh, the three editors, and that's allowed us uh, this incredible cohesion. We send each other the scripts, um, you know, so everything fits together because of that. You know, mm -hmm. we know what's going to happen in each other's books. We write towards that. The other part of the puzzle is, you know, these these events are sort of quarterbacked by Charles. Sure. And he's a very collaborative and very, you know, kind of giving, you know, like he'll say, hey, War of the Bounty Hunters is coming. Like, what can we do to balance? And so we have to pair up balance and Boba Fett. And, and like, of course, like, we, like, we got to blow up. Well, not right. <laughs> so, like, these are things, and so we work it out together. And and, um, and the reason we can do that is this is a unique moment in time in the Star Wars books where all four of those major books are set at the exact same time. Yeah. Because usually, what you see in different eras is like, here's a prequel book, and here's a you know here's a original trilogy era book, and here's something set you know around the time of uh, of the new movies. And so, like, having them all set can do crossovers. Yeah. Right? And I, that will not be unlimited because there's this window between Empire and Return of the Jedi and there's only, what, about a year between those two movies. Uh, so the stories, you know, that's why I'm saying, like, it's got to end at some point and then we'll do different things but mm -hmm. we won't have, this is a golden age, I think, where we can do this. So we are doing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, cosplay, obviously, a big part of Star Wars for a long time. Uh, I need multiple hands to count the number of different Mandalorians I have seen at this show alone. 
have you seen anyone cosplaying characters that you've created or, or had a hand in shepherding over these last few years, like a Valance or a Tom? Yes, uh, I've seen them uh, not so much here uh, at New York Comic Con, but I've seen them at Star Wars Celebration. In sure. fact, I have a great picture from London earlier this year where there's a whole mess of fans dressed up as Vukara, Tonga, Moshe, um, you know, Valance, and they're all together attacking me. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I'll show you that picture later, but it's, yeah, it's a pretty fun uh, picture. Yeah, the, the fans have been great. There's this sort of uh, so, uh, Twitter slash X community that, that call themselves hashtag balance nation that are constantly right. yelling at me for what I'm doing to their beloved characters, uh, you know, because you can't recover from trauma without having some. So, <laughs> so I, I, uh, I get a lot of that. Um, and I was with Paolo. I, I took Val, Paolo Villanelli to dinner uh, and drinks last night, and we tweeted like toasting to the downfall to the you know memory of the late balance <laughs> and then everyone's going getting angry at us <laughs> and then i immediately and muted it he responded like sh <laughs> take this down now ethan and <laughs> i was like remind me after the bar um yeah so so it's it's all in good fun and and, they, and the, one of the coolest experiences i had is this little kid mm -hmm. was in seventh grade came up to me after uh, a panel in uh, anaheim last year and he's like, Mr. Sachs, like, can I talk to you? And he showed me, he shot a video for a class project where he, he dressed up as Cad Bane, his father dressed up as Valance, his mother dressed up as Zuckus, and his grandfather dressed up as Bosk, and they're pretty good costumes. That's amazing. And this was his school project, and he didn't fail out of school. So, like, <laughs> like he's actually like, reading my, my stuff and, like, doing the further adventures. Uh, so that's, like, humbling, you know? I mean, when I was, when I was his age, I was consuming everything I could get my hands on Star Wars related so it's kind of kind of cool to see that absolutely uh, you've written a lot of classic Star Wars characters obviously over the last 40 issues plus the various other miniseries uh, set in the galaxy is there a character that you haven't written yet that you want to there are characters that I've written a little bit that I would kill to write again and one that I am going to write again but that's being announced today got so it I can't <laughs> Uh, final question, completely unrelated to everything else in the discussion, but uh, tis the season. Uh, favorite werewolves in media? Ooh, favorite werewolves. All right, so no one else loves this movie, but it, when I saw it, I am a sucker for Silver Bullet. Okay, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I just, it caught me at the right age, and I read the book, or the, yeah, the story, and like, um, it just scared the heck out of me so <laughs> I just uh, yeah so I, I felt like that would, I you know it's funny you mentioned that because uh, when I was at the Daily News uh, mm -hmm. where I worked for 20 years I put together a like a sort of point counterpoint for, for one Halloween where one person argued for vampires one person argued for werewolves and one person argued for zombies and I was the zombie how close so, to the Twilight series are we talking with this argument no well this was it may I mean the books probably were out I don't okay. remember if the movies were out but it definitely we were none of, none of the panelists were were mentioning too much about that it was more like which is the best horror okay. uh, uh -huh. genre or, or whatever and so I tackled zombies which was probably my favorite so uh, yeah so but uh, I remember the person talking about the uh, werewolves uh, my friend uh, uh, Joan Newmeyer was the movie critic for the paper at the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but uh, it was interesting because we all had our favorites. Yeah. Ethan, thank you so much for thank taking you, time to chat with me. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, so I'm sitting here with Vault Comics publisher, 
Damien Wassel. Damien, uh, we're, we're winding down Sunday on the convention. How has your weekend been, first of all? It's been a great show. We've had some great meetings. We had a great party. Uh, sales have been incredible. We're in a new booth location. Couldn't ask for a better location than what we've got. So you know, I would probably chalk this up as best convention ever for us. Okay, well, that's great. That's good to hear. Now, you know, you've got a lot of your trades out there. What particularly has been moving units? Uh, Witchblood is always uh, just convention rock star. People love that cover. If you can get a book like that on face-out display, you know, it'll just move, move, move. Uh, so a lot of Brandon Sanderson's Dark One, as mm. always. Lots of Vampire. And then a huge amount of Heathen, huge amount of Money Shot. Really, everything has been selling itself fairly well. So, but Witchblood's definitely a recurring convention standout, as is Quest Aside. Awesome. Now, uh, recently, Vault announced they're they're moving into kind of a partnership with musicians. They've got you've launched this this Headshell imprint. Uh, I guess I guess first in a in a let's say in a nutshell, what is Headshell? But let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> In a nutshell, what, what's, what was what, what, is, what is Headshell? What is so Headshell is a line of graphic novels from iconic recording artists, folks like Metallica, Def Leppard, Slash from Guns N' Roses, Fall Out Boy's Pete Wentz, Redman, The Beach Boys. We've got a few other folks we're signing now or have just signed that I, I can't mention yet, but mm -hmm. you know I think we'll really uh, turn some heads when we get to announce them. And you know the thesis is these these folks are all incredible storytellers in their careers a big part of what it means to be a successful recording artist. But there are lots of stories that they didn't get the opportunity to tell through their music, and we're partnering with them to bring those to life as graphic novels. How, how does Vault, or how did Vault, get into the music business? How, how difficult was it to kind of reach out to all these people and start making those connections? It's, I think on the one hand, really difficult, and on the other hand, once you can get into the conversation, it's hard to get them started. Sure. Once you can get into the conversation, it is easy to explain what you want to do. And people either really, really, really want to do it, or they have absolutely no interest in doing it, with almost <laughs> no one sitting in the middle, right? Because for a lot of these folks, it's, you know, you're facilitating doing a thing that they've either wanted to do for a really long time, or as soon as it's presented to them, realize that they're incredibly excited about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's... It's a very easy sell, you know, in that sense. Um, and then, you know, for some people, they're just like, as, as we all know as fans of comics and graphic novels, right, there's some people you bump into and they're like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just hard pass and that's yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, look, how many times have we all heard that, like, do they still make those question? And they're like, uh... yes, millions. There's thousands of independent retailers that sell comic books to people all the time. There's no other entertainment product that has that anymore. That's how serious a fan base there is. <laughs> it's funny, I had a call, just like pivoting off that, I had a call a few weeks ago and somebody made an offhand comment about how like finance people don't read comics and then I was on a call like 15 minutes later with five finance people and I was like, straw poll, how many of you read comics? And five hands went up. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Oh, that's 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 great. Finance bros reading comics. <laughs> they they do. People love this stuff, right? That's why it's like a multi-billion dollar industry driver. 
So uh, the first project that we can expect from Headshell is uh, the one with Slash, correct? Correct. Yeah. So that's up on Kickstarter at the moment. Uh, that is a comic book reboot of the you know uh, iconic sword and sorcery '80s film Deathstalker. Um, you know, sort of bring in some modern humor to that genre. Uh, De- you know, Slash uh, before he was a legendary guitarist. He worked at, uh, you know, Tower Video in, in the Valley in the 80s. And, mm-hmm. You know, he loves these old movies, so he and some partners, you know, got the rights to Deathstalker, and, you know, we partnered with them to bring that together as a graphic novel. It's been a phenomenal experience. I, look, I don't... I didn't have the opportunity to know some of these rock stars when they were younger, so who mm-hmm. knows? You know, we've all heard stories, but I can say without exception, they're some of the nicest people I've ever gotten to work with. That, that's that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I'm always interested when when comics pick up a, a new license to adapt. And by new, I, I mean, you know, something that, you know, we haven't seen. Not like Transformers and G.I. Joe, which have been in publication almost in perpetuity. But like, you know, when the license, when the license holder is approached and they're like, what you want to do? You want to do what with my thing? You know, how, how those conversations kind of go to start. That's, again, like, there's interest or complete disinterest. And a big part of that, I think, comes down to who the licensor is. You know, there are things sitting in the media libraries of, you know, the giant media conglomerates of the world that would, you know, they would just sell, like, hotcakes to our audience. And you go and talk to the execs at this or that studio, like I won't name any in particular, but you go and talk to the execs at this or that studio about, you know, doing a comic from this runaway hit from prior decades, and they're, they're you know, they're briefly interested, and they're like, how much money can we make? And you give them what, what are like nice projections for a business like ours, and they just go like, we don't care. And I think that's actually like a huge problem with the, like, you know, consolidation in the entertainment business is that it leads people to stop caring about, you know, small-scale wins yeah, and only to only care about, you know, conglomerate-scale wins. And the thing is, when you only care about conglomerate-scale wins, you get, like, moribund. You just start playing the hits. And yeah. all you do is play the hits. You're not making any new music. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, I, thinking a lot about where the comics industry is this year... I, I do feel like I'm seeing a lot more risk aversion in a lot of places. And so you guys saying, okay, we're going to branch out. We're looking to do, you know, this whole line of music things. In addition to, you know, the main vault line, in addition to Wonderbound, the, the all ages line, you know, I, I like being able to look in a direction and see somebody say, no, it's, let's keep doing a thing. <laughs> uh, weird way to phrase that, but you know, is is Headshell for for Vault for you guys? You know what you kind of see is the way to grow, the way to to, to what's next. Headshell is, uh, you know, it's definitely a growth engine. We have a few that we're working on. Some of them we haven't talked about publicly mm-hmm. yet. The thinking for us though is always always originates from a point of you know how, how do we tell great stories like you know we say this all the time in the offices like s- stories are everything sure. right like 
when in doubt, go back and ask yourself, like, what story are you telling? And we think about that, like, not just from the perspective of making great books, but also selling them, marketing them, interacting with the retailers that we love. Like, what's the story we're telling? What's the story we're getting everybody involved in? And I think when we think about Headshell as, like, you know, a business unit, yeah, excited about what I see on the spreadsheets. But it's more about, you know, a story for us, a story that, you know, these two businesses that may seem disparate, they fit together. The audiences fit together. We all care about the same things. And what do we care about? Great stories. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Um, well, Damien, I think, that, I think that's it, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk with me. Of course. Yeah, Dan, it was great to talk. All right. We are, we are damn near the end of the show, uh, and I've got Steve Orlando here. Steve, uh, scale of 1 to 10, how tired are you? Uh, ten is not a ten is not a high enough scale, um, <laughs> but you know what? You know it's a, it's the show that comes but once a year, so that's totally fine. That's how it should be. Uh, but no, I mean, look, it's a, you spend five days hustling. That's what we do. Yep. Um, and you know we're here to meet readers and meet fans and things like that. So yeah, of course I'm tired, but it, something would be wrong if I wasn't. That's so. fair. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, have you gotten to do any shopping while you're here? You know, did you did, did you get Steve a treat to remember the show? <laughs> uh, the treat to remember the show is that I can sleep in my own bed tonight. Amen. Uh, no, the reality, like, listen, I'm not to be unsexy, but like I said before, in my opinion, I'm not here to shop. I'm here to I'm here to meet readers and and promote this stuff. So I've been tabling. I've been signing with the folks at Vault, signing with the folks at Mad Game, signing at my own table. For me, at least, just how I do it. That's what I'm here for. You know, people come out, they, 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 they spend vast amounts of money and travel vast distances. So if they've in any small way came to see me, I want to be available to them. Of course. So let's talk about your Vault series, uh, Sainted Love, with uh, artist Giapoda. How did this one end up at Vault? Uh, well, it's, it's an idea that I've been thinking about for a long time, uh, probably for about five years. But it, it's sort of been one of those things stuck to my idea board at home, but waiting for the right place and the right time and the right artist. So, um, yeah. In the case of Vault, I've been talking to Adrian and the folks there about doing the book for a little while, uh, starting probably about 2020, and we were working on another concept. It was just one of those things where you were chipping away and chipping away and chipping away, um, but you were chipping away at something that you just you, you didn't want the raw material, basically. Like We were trying to square peg around a whole, a completely different concept, and we were just sitting talking one day, and I said, you know what, Like this might be crazy, but what if I pitched you like sci-fi time travel erotica and we just threw this other thing in the, in the bin? or in the drawer. Mm -hmm. And as it happened, Adrian was like, you know, I've been actually looking for that exact slot. So again, right place, right time. I'd had the broad idea since probably 2018 and just waiting for a publisher that shared the vision, right? And, and, and luckily with Vault, there's vision to spare. Yeah. Uh, going into the project, what were you looking for in an artistic collaborator? I wanted something that was surprising. Uh, and, and that's why I love Geo. Uh, you know, for folks who've seen the book, it's like the naughtiest Studio Ghibli movie never made, you know, and, and that's what's really special to, uh, about the book. One of the things that's special about the book for me, there's certain, uh, certainly a perception of what uh, erotica type books and not safe for work books look like. Mm -hmm. It's not this. And, uh, you know, I, 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 to me that's like part of the core message. Queering something is going against expectations, going against structures and traditions. So to do this book and be proud of the content, um, be bold with the content, um, yeah, we could have used any more of traditional, uh, any more traditional art styles, but it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been as good. 
it wouldn't have been as right with the spirit of the book, which is challenging norms. So I love Gio's art style. I couldn't imagine it without him for the very fact that it's never what people would expect, you know? And at the same time, that goes right along with the point of the book. Uh, you know, queer history, hiding in plain sight, uh, a book that like obviously prizes body diversity for folks who've read it. Mm -hmm. We want this book to show that things don't have to be a certain way, act a certain way, look a certain way, um, uh, both to be sexy, uh, but also, of course, both to be relevant and vital. Uh, what was kind of the thing, uh, the first issue starts out in, in early 20th century, the Gilded Age, uh, goes to kind of 1950s Hollywood. What, what was sort of the thinking in the particular eras that these characters visit throughout the series? Um, I think, the, you know, I've said it a couple places, like this is an adventure book first and foremost. Yeah. But there's a little bit of early Doctor Who to it as well. You know, Doctor Who originated as an educational program. And it did, of course, move more into adventure in the current, uh, the current you know, marketplace. But when it started out 60 years ago, the Doctor was traveling in time, uh, both for thrills, but also to educate his, uh, his young viewers about different parts of history. We're not going quite that sort of um, academic in okay. the book, but what, I, what we do hope happens is that we visit eras that maybe folks didn't know that there were queer folks around. Or in the case of the 50s, of course, we were around, but folks didn't know how prevalent we were. They didn't really know the face of our struggles and things like that. So going to the 50s, Going back to ancient Rome with Sergius and Bacchus, who some scholars believe were gay saints um, and gay martyrs. Well, they were definitely they were definitely martyrs. That part isn't in question. Sure. Um, it's about sort of pulling back the, the the veil on history, and in a metatextual sense, proving the point of the book that we've always been here. And we're not stopping for a history lesson, but what I do hope is that when we go places and folks meet new supporting cast members and, and new time periods where queer history is happening that maybe they do take that as a jumping off point for their own educational uh, uh, inspiration and they do sort of hunt down more and they want to find out more about these characters. The, you know, as long as this book runs, yes, it's going to be a sexy book, yes, it's going to be a violent book, but Mac and Wolf are the guides to the, to the hidden queer history that really is hiding in plain sight in the real world and that's a vital part of the book as well. Awesome. So are these, you've been in the industry a while obviously, but are these the most uh, some of the most explicit scenes that you've committed to the page. Um, yes, in the case of sexual content, at least, like sure. you know, this is America. Like a kid can see someone's head getting blown up when they're five, but they can't see like a bare breast. So, in some ways, yes, like it's certainly the most explicit sexual content that I, um, I've been part of putting on the page. Um, but it almost feels equitable because I made my name on a book about a guy who was not just gay, but was also a mass murdering uh, living weapon, right? So from day one, we've been able to show eyeballs exploding and brains exploding. So I've kind of been explicit from day one. Um, it's time for different things to explode. Yes, this, well, <laughs> my God. Um, so yeah, for me, this is all about actually bringing everything up to the same level in many ways. It feels spiritually right. And, um, uh, how did the, the Kickstarter campaign for the special edition work as far as a test gauge for audience interest, do you feel? I mean, I, we got, look, the Kickstarter did great, it blew up, so I feel like, I, I would say it worked exceptionally uh, as a test gauge. We know the audience is there. That's not why we did it, though. It's important to say, like, your previous question, like, is this the most explicit thing that you've done? Doing this book, we couldn't be second-guessing. Sure. We couldn't be compromising 
you know, how we depict things. So for us, crowdfunding, it was great to gauge the audience, but it's also a way to ensure that this is a book that will, ha will not sort of, we don't have to compromise the career content. We have to answer only to ourselves. And even though, of course, Vault is a publisher, they still have people to answer to. They still have to answer to printers. They still have to answer to, um, you know, mass media and things like that. So the Kickstarter actually enabled us to make this the exact 100% version of the book that we wanted it to be. Of course, you always set out to do that in comics, but for a book like this that is swinging the way it is, and it's a big swing, that, was a, that wasn't just like something you hoped for. It was an obligation. And for us, that was the true asset of doing crowdfunding. Uh, on to other things. So this weekend, Marvel announced that you're going to be doing a Scarlet uh, Witch and Quicksilver mini to celebrate both characters' 60th anniversary. You've been working with Wanda for a while now. Uh, how, first of all, how have you been enjoying, you know, working with Wanda, who's who's kind of been finally redeemed since House of M, and and what are you kind of hoping to now explore with Pietro? Well, I think you know. A, it's great to be working with Wanda. She's it's some of my favorite work I've done in my career. Uh, working with Russell, working with Carlos, uh, mm -hmm. Lorenzo, with Sara Pichelli. You don't get, it doesn't get much better than that. Sure. You know? Um, and by the way, also Alana Smith and Caitlin Linvet, who edit. Uh, I mean, I obviously, if I didn't think highly of my own work, I wouldn't be here. But, uh, but editorial is a strong part of the team for Scarlet Witch as well. And, and they, they're in the trenches making sure the book is exactly what it needs to be. But... You know, Wanda has gotten a lot of the spotlight, and she's gotten time to grow past her her, her prior characterization, her prior hurdles. Uh, it's been fun to sort of examine that in a less explicit way in the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she is a complicated character. She is, uh, she, and like all of us, um, she's not perfect. Uh, and, but since the book has started, she has sort of tried to put it all on herself after all the times that she, she did it and, 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 and releasing sort of her inner turmoil uh, got other people hurt. You've seen her sort of believe she has all the solutions, and often she does, but there's an ego there. There's a, there's a, almost a toxic confidence there, and all the things that she's done, going back all the way to absorbing the Darkhold and chaining Cathan in her soul. Mm -hmm. um, as you saw Agatha note it in the annual, as you'll see in the upcoming series, it puts a target on her back. I mean, these are fundamental forces of reality, and they matter, mm -hmm. you know? So um, in the in the team up miniseries for Wanda like it is a chance uh, to turn that corner where she assuming she has all the answers becomes a problem for Pietro it's a time to give him the chance to grow and develop uh, not just his personality uh, but his powers as well in the same way that Wanda has um, and get a little bit of the spotlight and show why he's just as vital and just as special as she is um, what was the reaction uh from people that you saw when you brought back Joseph? Um, I think people, well, you know, it was the perfect time, you know? Uh, a lot of comics is like a lemons to lemonade scenario. We were doing Scarlet Witch, and I was uh, like, great, the Chosen family's getting back together. Can't wait for that. Oh, wait a minute, Magneto's dying, so awesome. But the thing is, is that like we got to do something more special. Um, you know, comics loves to bring people back from the dead, but this really is the perfect time to bring Joseph back because it plays directly in what's going on in Wanda's life. Mm -hmm. She wasn't there to save Magneto, so she is uniquely susceptible to compromising, um, not her morals, but uh, stepping into the lion's den, basically, and accepting someone that, you know, she knows, like, it's, a little, it's all a little convenient. Mm -hmm. But her need to have that second chance. Here's some guy that looks exactly like her father that is saying, I need your help. 
she needs to help that person. She sees it as doing what she couldn't do for Magneto. So it's the perfect time to bring him back because it's for character reasons. It's not just to bump an, bump an issue sales number or things like that. It made sense for the story. And in regards to people with the reaction, I mean, people are excited that he's hot again. Um, people are excited that he has a beard. Um, and I think, you know, it's actually refreshing to not have, have done like a bait and switch or something like that. Oh, like it's really Max, it's really Magneto. Mm -hmm. For folks who knew, like the answer was in plain sight. He's got a giant decapitation scar uh, <laughs> when it first shows up in his neck. So I think there's an excitement. There's a, oh, you know, we're just bringing everybody back. But now there's been a few issues. People see that it, it, it is really intrinsic to the story. He's there for real character and story reasons. And uh, hopefully by the time he like has his big show off or shirt on with Wanda, the people really care uh, because I mean he is he's someone looking for redemption and that is uh, something that is so personal to Wanda again like she was almost like constitutionally incapable of not opening her door to him even though she knew you know he might be a snake when she let him in and then uh, you're also writing Astonishing Iceman right now uh, issue three features Aaron Fisher the Captain America of the railways what about that character spoke to you that you wanted to uh, use him I mean, I love, I love Aaron Fisher, um, going back to his original creation. Um, I love that he, like, it'd be easy to just make a queer Captain America and just, I don't know, do like the Captain America version of Apollo and Midnighter, right? Yeah. Um, as they are to Batman and Superman. Sure. But uh, what they did with Aaron Fisher was something I think was more special, you know, making him the Captain America of the Railways, making him the Captain America of the Unhomed. You know, um, a large percentage of queer youth uh, struggle with uh, in, in unstable homes, uh, you know, food instability, so many things. Uh, that goes for trans youth as well. So, listen, I just think he's a genius character. I think that he was uniquely built to serve not just the broad community, but the part of the community that would need him the most. So I think he's a beautiful creation. And with everything going on with uh, Orcus in America and the world in general in, in Fall of X, um, listen, Again, this is not just we must use all the gay characters in Marvel. Orcus is a force, and this is a fight that Aaron would be part of. You know, he is there for people who are forced out of their places of safety. So again, it's story reasons, it's character reasons. And I'm not going to say it's not awesome to have the cap in the book with Iceman, but like, listen, he's there because he's an amazing character that was uh, built nearly perfectly, and uh, he was perfect for the story. Right on. Well, uh, Steve, it's... It's quitting time for both of us, I think. Uh, get home safe, have a great rest of your show, and uh, look forward to seeing whatever comes next. Awesome, thank you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at ComicsXF, 
and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A.